Hello everyone, this is Sam of Historian Explaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. So it's been a long pause since I last posted on this podcast. As my regular listeners will know, it's been actually over a month. So I'm sorry for this long delay. It's been mainly due to personal and family issues and also due to travel to a warmer climate, particularly to Florida. Uh, If you follow me on Twitter, you may have seen some of the images, the photos that I took that I've posted from my journeys around, seeing historic sites and places that I mentioned in my lectures about Florida. If people are interested, I might post a patron-only discussion just talking about my trip through Florida and what I saw. But now I want to get back into the cycle of producing and posting lectures once again. I'll be working soon on another Myth of the Month, which will be either entirely or partly for patrons only. I also have different series in the works that I want to start, one on the origins of World War I, and possibly another on the local area of New England where I happen to live. I also will continue maybe next month with another video lecture on architecture, following up from the first video lecture that I posted in March. But meantime, I realized I have a lot of threads that I've already started and have left off that I ought to pick up and continue. So the one that I'm going to talk about now, today, at audience request, is India. So this will pick up from my earlier two lectures from last year, India Part 1, Creating Civilization in South Asia, and Part 2, Foundations of Hinduism. So this one will be Part 3, on the rise of the South and the Islamic conquests. And this lecture will be brought to you by the letter E, and I'll explain later what that means. So this will pick up more or less where I left off both of those previous two lectures, with the rise and then decline and fall of the last classical empire of India, which was the Gupta Empire and the renewed vitality and efflorescence of Hinduism and Hindu piety with new movements like the Vedanta philosophical schools and the Bhakti movement. So this lecture will pick up roughly around the five and six hundreds, just after the collapse of the Gupta Empire, and will go through what some historians have called the post-classical era, an era of relative fragmentation and localization, and will continue on up through till the first conquest and rise of the Mughal Empire in the 1500s. So this is about a thousand years that we're going to discuss. And there's a lot that happened, there's a lot of complexity, and a lot of details to sort through. But I'd like to start, as I often have with many of my lectures, I'd like to start with a story that I think encapsulates so much of what was important and momentous about this era in India. And this story comes from certain chronicles, Islamic chronicles, written during the Abbasid Caliphate, so several hundred years after the events that they describe. And we can't know exactly how much of the details here are strictly true, but I think it's a very interesting and symbolically important story nonetheless. So this story starts in the year 708, at which time reportedly a small Arab fleet sailed down from the Persian Gulf across the Arabian Sea, down the western coast of India, landing eventually at the kingdom of Anuradhapura, 
which was a very prosperous kingdom on the island of Sri Lanka. And it was not unusual for fleets like this to move back and forth around the Indian Ocean following the seasonal monsoon winds. This particular fleet carried a group of women and children who were going to visit the grave sites of men who had died in Sri Lanka. At this point, there was already a great deal of trade and diplomacy between that kingdom on Sri Lanka and Arabia and the Islamic Caliphate. It had started at least since the 600s or earlier. So this was a group of Muslims whose fathers, husbands, brothers, and so on had died at various points conducting trade in Sri Lanka. And these people went there to pay respects to these deceased. After their visit, the fleet again set sail in order to return with the shifting winds back across the Arabian Sea. But on their way back up the coast of India, when they were passing by the small kingdom of Sindh, which is largely a rugged, arid region, they were attacked by pirates. And these pirates took the loot and the prisoners from this fleet back to their base in the port town of Dabal. They handed custody of the prisoners over to the representatives of the king of Sindh, the Raja Dahir. Eventually, news of their capture got back to the Arab Muslim governor of Persia, whose name was Hajjaj bin Yusuf, and who was the main representative of the Umayyad Caliphate in the east. The governor Hajjaj demanded the return of these prisoners, but he was refused. We don't know exactly why. Perhaps they demanded a high ransom. And by this point, Sindh had already become a thorn in the side of the Islamic Caliphate, because among other things, it was hiding and sheltering political dissidents and fugitives who fled eastward from Persia. And also they'd been allowing pirates and bandits to prey on the Arab shipping passing by on the way to other parts of India. So the governor Hajjaj took this refusal to hand over the hostages in Dabal as a last straw. And in the following years, in 709 and 710, he dispatched two expeditions to try to bring Sindh to heel. And these expeditions both failed when reaching rugged, dry terrain and also strong fortifications around the cities of Sindh. So in the year after that, in 711, Hajjaj sent a third expedition, this one under the command of his young nephew named Muhammad bin Qasim. Muhammad was reportedly only 17 years old at this time, but he was already clearly a military prodigy. He took with him a massive force, including 6,000 Arab cavalry and 6,000 camel riders, as well as various reinforcements from regional allies, enormous amounts of supplies, and a team of massive state-of-the-art catapults to assault the walls of the towns of Sindh. His first target naturally was Dabal, the nest of pirates, which was taken after a long assault. The governor fled. The prisoners reportedly were freed. The fighting-age men of the town were slaughtered and some enslaved, and the Hindu temple of Dabal was destroyed. Muhammad bin Qasim and his forces then proceeded northward and eastward, and most towns of Sindh quickly surrendered without bloodshed. But they still had to cross eastward across the Indus River to confront the main forces of the king, Raja Dahir. A battle was engaged at Rori. The Sindhis defended their forces with war elephants, but nonetheless, they were outmaneuvered by the Arab horsemen. The Arabs won the battle, and Dahir died in the combat. Most of Sindh then submitted to Muhammad bin Qasim, 
but a holdout city was Multan, which was considered a holy city for Hindus. After a long siege, the surrender of Multan was negotiated by the heads of mercantile houses. The soldiers and fighting men generally were slaughtered, but civilians, including farmers and artisans, were spared and encouraged to remain in place and continue their work as before. So at this point, Sindh is basically all in the hands of Muhammad bin Qasim and his Arab troops. But shortly after, in 714, Hajjaj, the governor of Persia, who was Muhammad's main patron and protector, died. And then the year after that, in 715, the caliph in Damascus also died. And internal power struggles broke out within the caliphate. So Muhammad bin Qasim was quickly recalled to Iraq, where he got caught up in this power struggle. He shortly after was taken prisoner in Iraq and was tortured and killed by his political enemies. So Muhammad had a remarkably short life and career, but nonetheless, his conquest of Sindh began an era of over 1,000 years of Islamic rule in Sindh, and what is more, it marked the first stage in the Islamic takeover of India, which would progress over many centuries. So again, the details of this story of how the conquest of Sindh by the Arab Muslims came about and how it unfolded are open to question. But nonetheless, regardless of whether it is all strictly factual, every aspect of this story as it is recorded is revealing and symbolically important to understanding the history and evolution of Indian civilization after the fall of the Guptas. And specifically, those aspects of the story include where the story began, namely where this fleet that was captured came from, what their destination was, what became of it, and what resulted from it. So let's say we start from the beginning. This Arab fleet set sail, we don't know exactly from where, but most likely from the Persian Gulf. That was the main base of Islamic shipping. It was headed towards the kingdom of Anuradhapura on the island of Sri Lanka. So this was a very long-standing kingdom with many towns and villages based on rice cultivation. Most of the people of the kingdom were Sinhalese, so they were an Indo-European-speaking people, related at least somewhere in their ancestry to the Indo-Aryan people who came into India from Central Asia. The kingdom had been an early adopter of Buddhism, and it housed important shrines and Buddhist relics, including a branch of the so-called Bodhi tree, the fig tree from Bihar, where, which was reportedly the site where the Buddha attained enlightenment. But nonetheless, despite this, Anuradhapura was generally seen as a fairly marginal, minor, peripheral kingdom from the point of view of India. It was not really even included on the political map of India for its first several centuries. But this situation started to change during the classical age, specifically during the Gupta era, when Anuradhapura experienced growing prosperity and involvement in trade and diplomacy. And this greater prosperity and its strategic role in seafaring and shipping on the Indian Ocean made it a target then for nearby rulers and chieftains. It became more desirable. In the 400s, the island was invaded several times by warlords from southern India. These invaders were repelled, 
But nonetheless, there was increasing feuding and intrigue over control of the throne of the kingdom as it became more prosperous and valuable. In 477, the king died and the throne was seized by his illegitimate son by a non-royal consort who was named Kashiapa. Kashiapa withdrew the capital of the kingdom from the city of Anuradhapura and built a stone fortress atop a massive sheer-sided rock butte in the interior of the island. And this served as a secure headquarters and palace guarded by a massive gate with a sculptural lion. And the fortress hence was called Sigiriya, meaning Lion Rock. A rival claimant to the throne nevertheless came to the island and overthrew Kashiapa in 495. After Kashiapa, the royal court then returned to the city of Anuradhapura, and Sigiriya became a Buddhist monastery, which it seems it remained for hundreds of years after. But nonetheless, the construction of this monumental stone fortress shows the increasing importance and power of this kingdom. And in the 500s overall, port towns on the coast of Sri Lanka became sites of trade, especially up and down the western coast of India, and with trade routes extending all the way to Persia and Mesopotamia. And this trade was largely facilitated by Arabs, who would visit seasonally and sometimes remain and settle permanently on the island. Very early early chronicles from Sri Lanka say that land was granted to Arab merchants just outside the city gates of the capital. And furthermore, these Arab merchants brought Islam into the country beginning in the 600s. So therefore, in this context, it's not surprising that a group of Muslim travelers would have sojourned in the kingdom in 708. And even more broadly than that, the fact that an international incident that sparked a war and invasion of India started because of trade and travel to Sri Lanka reflects an important major change, a shift in Indian life in this era, in the post-classical age, and that is the rise of the South. So the growing power and prosperity of Anuradhapura on Sri Lanka was part of a wider rise of southern India, which was even more dramatic at this time on the mainland than it was in Sri Lanka. So quickly after the fall of the Gupta Empire, the center of trade and wealth and high culture in the subcontinent quickly shifted southward. Most of the crucially important events and innovations in India, such as new art and architecture, religious movements, explorations and missions abroad, from the 600s up to the 1200s, began in the south, in an area that had previously been simply peripheral and often barely a footnote to the more dramatic and dynamic history that was going on in the north. So if one thinks back to my lecture on Hinduism, I left off talking about the rise of the popular bhakti movement and the new art forms that came with it, and also the rise of the Vedanta school of philosophy, led most of all by Adi Shankara, who came from the Chera kingdom in modern-day Kerala at the far southwestern corner of India. So these are all just examples that I've already talked about before of how the vitally new ideas, practices, the new horizons that were being opened up in India were now suddenly coming from the south, not the north. So let's talk a bit about the geography of the south so we understand what we're talking about. So the southern end of the subcontinent is sometimes also called peninsular India, where it extends far southward 
down into the Indian Ocean and forms a rather sharp point, sort of pointing straight down into the ocean. And then just off to the eastern side of this southern point is the large island of Sri Lanka. So a lot of the interior of peninsular India is a high plateau called the Deccan Plateau. And it is particularly high and rugged along its western side. And the western edge of this plateau has been formed by erosion into a very jagged and rugged mountain range called the Western Ghats. Then from the west to the east, the land gradually slopes down, reaching eventually to tropical lowlands along the eastern coast. And this sloping plateau is drained by several large rivers that flow down from west to east, ending in wide, fertile deltas along the eastern coast. So the terrain of the southwest and the southeast are very different, and they offer different advantages. The Deccan Plateau on the western side offers high points that are well-drained, and the high plateau also allows for routes and paths along clear high ground, and hence it serves as a kind of natural highway running north-south and linking north to south India. Meanwhile, the low-lying plain along the east offers great fertility, rich productive lands, but it is very hard to traverse with dense tropical rainforest and wide flooding rivers, and one must depend on sea travel, in order to move up and down the East Coast, it also is vulnerable to floods. As for the peoples, the ethnic and linguistic groups that have inhabited South India for more than 2,000 years, they are mainly Dravidian-speaking. So these are peoples who speak a family of closely related languages that go back to prehistoric times in India, and that at root are totally unrelated to the Indo-European languages so ancestrally have no connection to Sanskrit or Hindi or any of those. It seems that these Dravidian-speaking peoples also traditionally had gods and customs with ancient roots in the region that were separate from the Indo-Aryan gods and belief systems of the north. The four main Dravidian languages that have been spoken for many centuries in the south of India are Telugu, Tamil, Kannada, and Malayalam. So Telugu is spoken in the upper northeast, in the area that's now called Andhra Pradesh. Tamil is spoken in the far southeast, in the area we now call Tamil Nadu, which simply means the Tamil country. Kannada is spoken in the upper southwest, in the high Deccan Plateau, in the region now called Karnataka. And finally, Malayalam, which is probably the youngest of these languages, is spoken in the far southwest in the coastal area called Kerala. And all of these languages, it seems, have shared roots in the Dravidian family, but they all took their current forms, took shape in the post-classical age when they started to be written down and they became literary languages. So it seems that these regions of far southern India began to rise to greater power and prosperity by about 600. But for a long time, there was an age of what you could call feuding states or feuding kingdoms. So around 600, various statelets and chiefdoms emerged among the villages of South India. And they were of many different sizes with different sorts of government. But two main major kingdoms consolidated and became the principal powers in the south. One of them in the southeast and one in the southwest. 
each one led by a royal dynasty. So in the West, the main powerful dynasty that came forth was the Chalukyas, who were founded by a ruler named Pulakeshin, who ruled in the upper southwest, in the upper Deccan Plateau, with a capital at the town of Badami. And they dominated the Kannada-speaking region, basically what we now know as Karnataka. While meanwhile, in the east, a dynasty called the Pallavas, founded by Mahendravarnam, ruled in the southeastern plains with a capital at Kanchipuram in present-day Tamil Nadu. So for the most part, these two kingdoms, the Chalukyas in the west and the Pallavas in the east, had different aims and focused their attention in different directions. So the Chalukyas, as I said, were situated in the upper Deccan with their power base on land, and they were more linked towards the north. And they occasionally took advantage of their position in the Deccan Plateau to raid and conquer northward, all the way into the Indo-Gangetic Plain. But they never held on to those far northern territories for very long. Meanwhile, the Pallavas in the eastern plains dominated the coast and the seagoing trade. And they looked more to the southward. And they sometimes tried to control the smaller, more minor kingdoms at the far southern tip of India, including Madurai, which was close to the far southeastern end of India and ruled by a dynasty called the Pandyas, and also sometimes Chera, which was a nominal kingdom that was really more of a loose confederation of trading towns and villages on the southwest coast, also called the Malabar coast. And also they sometimes went to sea and went as far as trying to exert control over Anuradhapura, the kingdom on Sri Lanka. And they were able to bring these different statelets in the far south under their suzerainty at various times, but never entirely annex them into their own kingdom. So basically, overall, these two kingdoms of the Chalukyas and the Pallavas sometimes were able to stay out of each other's way and coexist. But both of them wanted to control the rich, fertile province of Vengi along the eastern coast, which was just north of the Pallava kingdom and directly east of the Chalukyas. So both of them wanted this especially rich coastal province that was roughly equidistant to both of their capitals. And this conflict brought them into repeated warfare through the 600s and 700s. And there was a long, drawn-out power struggle with the two sides more or less evenly matched. A few times, one kingdom was able to defeat the other's main royal army and march on their opponent's capital. And at least twice, Pallava forces actually marched into the Chalukyas capital at Badami. But still, they were never able to hold on to these gains for very long. Permanent defeat, it seems, was impossible because these kingdoms were very decentralized. Even if you captured the capital, the real power of the kingdom lay in the hinterlands, in the various towns and villages, and the local potentates and chieftains. So we actually know a surprisingly great amount about the social and political structures of these kingdoms because they were very complex, their arrangements of land use, tax collection, and these rules and processes were very well recorded in writing. And a lot of these records even were then engraved into copper plates that were then preserved and reproduced through the centuries. So we know a lot more, and there's a much more recorded about the actual workings of these kingdoms in the south than there is from the kingdoms at the same time in the north. 
So we can say that the basic fundamental unit of these southern kingdoms was the village. The villages were generally self-sufficient. They produced their own food and water supplies, and they had their own artisans like smiths and weavers, so that they didn't have to import much of anything from outside if not necessary. And the village of this era seems to have been remarkably self-governing. The greatest amount of records survive from Brahmin villages, but the system was probably fairly similar elsewhere, and we can see it seems villages were generally governed by a periodic town assembly called the Ur, which would be a gathering of all the tax-paying adult men of the village. And then affairs were managed on the day-to-day level by a smaller selected council, usually chosen by lot, by various different methods and processes, such as, for instance, choosing one random man from each ward of the village to form a council. And this council was responsible for all kinds of important tasks, like gathering and remitting the taxes that the village owed, maintaining the basic infrastructure and poor relief, settling legal disputes and administering justice, and occasionally also even sending emissaries out to other villages in order to make cooperative agreements. And in this way, you could see the villages acting almost like miniature sovereign states setting their own little foreign policies. As for the material economic foundation of these southern kingdoms, it was based most of all on rice cultivation. There also were large plantations of coconut palms, as well as many groves of mangoes and plantains. The prosperity of the towns and villages grew with more sophisticated irrigation, and particularly with wet rice cultivation. Now, this may sound strange. Why was irrigation necessary when this is a very wet tropical climate? But in fact, if you remember, it was a monsoon-based climate. And hence, the shifting seasons depended on shifting oceanic winds that would bring in rains at particular times of year. So there would be a wet season, but it alternated with dry and hot seasons before the the rain then returned the next year. And hence, much more rice could be grown if irrigation was carried on through the dry and hot seasons. And hence, it was customary that each village in southern India created its own so-called tank, which was actually a dammed reservoir created at a high elevation point that could fill up during the wet season and then be tapped into for irrigation the rest of the year. And this became a major function of village councils and also of various charitable organizations that would collect donations and form a so-called tank committee in order to spend money to administer and maintain the tank. So wet rice cultivation brought significant food surpluses, which then allowed more and more villages to tap into networks of trade. And the exports of these southern villages and the kingdoms that they were part of included spices, incense, perfumes, and tropical hardwoods. There were various imports brought in in return, gold and silver, ivory, and so forth. But the main import of certainly the one of the highest value was horses. And the trade of importing thoroughbred horses into India was managed sometimes overland from Central Asia, but increasingly in this era, in the 500s and 600s, it was taken over by Arab sea traders. 
The southern kingdoms, especially the Tamil Pallava kingdom and Kerala, also brought in imports from the east. So Indian merchants developed a growing trade to the eastward with Southeast Asia, with lands that are now part of Thailand, Malaysia, and Indonesia, and then from there increasingly onward all the way to China. And so they were able to import porcelain and silk and other Chinese goods. Some of these then were further re-exported to the West, and hence South India became a major hub of an East-West oceanic trade, linking all the way from China to the Middle East and Europe. So trading towns, especially in Kerala, became very diverse, and you could say cosmopolitan places. There were waves of migrants and refugees who came into South India from the West, fleeing sometimes from warfare or religious persecution, and bringing new languages and religions into India. So there had long been Christians in South India, but then new Christians of various sorts and persuasions came and settled in the port towns. Also Arab Muslims, as we've talked about. From the 700s onward, there were waves of Zoroastrian migrants, many of them fleeing from persecution in Persia. And there is still today a Zoroastrian community in India who are commonly called Parsis, simply meaning Persian. There also were migrations of Jews, and we don't know a lot about them in detail, but one significant group of Jews migrated into Kerala at the southwestern tip of India, led by a leader who was called Joseph Rabban, probably meaning Joseph the teacher. And it seems that he further co-founded a guild of Jewish, Christian, and Muslim merchants who were given rights to live and trade permanently in Kerala. As for the political structure of these southern Indian kingdoms, it was based fundamentally on control of the villages, which, as I said, were fairly self-supporting, self-supplying, and increasingly prosperous social units. These villages were expected to pay taxes towards the royal government, which could often be quite high, such as a fifth of all the produce of the village. The kings could control the right to collect these taxes from each village. So the kings didn't necessarily extract that tax revenue themselves directly into their own treasuries, but they at least, according to law and custom, had the right to assign who could collect those taxes, and they could assign it to whomever they judged most expedient for instance, to a Brahmin teacher or association in order to show their piety and patronage of religion. They could assign it to a guild or confraternity or to a monastery, especially a Buddhist monastery in areas where Buddhism was strong. But most often it would be assigned to some local notable or potentate who then could take a share of the taxes for themselves and pass the rest on to the crown at the capital. And this system, you could say, was roughly similar to practices in Europe around the same time, where you had a society based at bottom on self-sufficient manners, and kings could assign the right to collect rents and fees from a given manor. And this was often assigned, again, to a monastery, or more often to a noble or a knight, who then also owed military service to the crown. And so seeing this similarity, many scholars have labeled this society in southern India as feudal and have called these local potentates who collected taxes feudatories, although there are problems with this analogy. For one thing, as I discussed in my lecture on feudalism, 
practices in medieval Europe were not so consistent or standard, and there was no clear exchange of assigning manners to a knight in return for military service. That's really a myth. Uh, Well, an unsupported myth, I should say. And really, by contrast, the South Indian system, it seems, was more standardized. There was more consistency about what each village owed in terms of rates of pay, and someone would have the right to collect those payments and either to keep it all or to keep a cut of it. And all of this in South India, it seems, was handled on the ground at the local level among local people. There was no centralized bureaucracy. There were very few royal representatives or emissaries out there in the countryside. This was seen as unnecessary or impractical. And hence, the functioning of these kingdoms really depended on voluntary trust and cooperation, which could then break down in times of crisis, such as when the crown failed to protect the country from outside threats. So while royal authority was fairly weak and light on the ground, Nonetheless, this was a highly stratified society, and there were very complex ranked castes and social classes. So the southern kingdoms adopted the basic stratification into four classes that was embedded in Hinduism, with the the Brahmins as the highest status priestly class, then the Kshatriya, the sort of governing and warrior class, the Vaishya, the so-called villagers, which was the artisanal and mercantile class, and then the shudras, the laboring and peasant class. But nonetheless, the southern Indian peoples overlaid this system onto other traditional distinctions within their societies, such as the distinction between artisans and merchants. So they might all be considered Vaishya under the classical Hindu system, But there was a clear divide where merchants in the South were considered higher status and higher ranking than the artisans who produced the tradable items through their handiwork. The Southern societies also created more subcasts, many of them arising over time from practice in local areas. And also the caste system in the South sometimes grouped workers who dealt with unclean work, such as dealing with dead bodies, together into the category of untouchables. So it was a highly stratified society and a highly organized society. There were many different social associations that sort of managed civic and economic life. Many lands and properties were held by cooperative organizations like occupational guilds. And as trade increased, long-distance merchant guilds became quite powerful, especially in the mercantile towns on the coast, and they could practically dominate some of these commercial towns, but they always still formally deferred to royal authority as the supreme authority in the land. Over time, the temple really became the main central organizing institution, the main social center and gathering place, the mediator of learning and culture, and the funnel for charity. So while early on, of course, a lot of money moved through town councils and tank committees, increasingly donations to temples carried great prestige, spiritual merit, and so the temple became the major funnel of wealth from the prosperous upper classes to the poor, as well as to scholars, artists, builders, and teachers. And more and more temples acted as the village treasury and even as the banker or lender 
where they would often fund infrastructural projects like roads, levees, and the tanks themselves. As for royal authority or what we would call government, as I said, the uh, kings generally appointed local notables or chieftains or else sometimes sent out trusted relatives as emissaries to provinces. But they were very few on the ground, and they had very limited powers, mainly just, as I said, the right to collect taxes. And if the kings in the capital wanted more power over local affairs, they had to cultivate and rely upon local support. So ties to the crown could be ambiguous, weak, unreliable, and hence there was a fundamental instability. The royal states were really a precarious superstructure. And dynasties could often be overthrown by their own feudatories, or as I would call them, vassals. And the rulers might be replaced or exiled, or they might sometimes, as a compromise, be reduced to the position of being vassals under the authority of the new rulers. And so sometimes there were sort of dynasties relegated to lower roles that then also might reassert themselves and come back into power. For example... The first dynasty that really built up that kingdom in Karnataka that I was talking about was the Chalukyas, and they were overthrown and replaced in 753 by another family, the Rashtrakutas, who then ruled for more than 200 years with the Chalukyas relegated to a vassalage position. But in 973, the Chalukyas came back. So there was a sort of seesaw from one dynasty to another. Also, vassals could switch their allegiances, and if they were dissatisfied with a king or if they just saw an opportunity, they might help a foreign ruler to come in and and invade the kingdom or to peacefully seize power. And hence, there were frequent confusing changes in ruling dynasties, even if, in the meantime, village life on the ground remained mostly unaffected. Now, as for the art and culture of these kingdoms in the South during this age of prosperity. A great deal of high culture was patronized by the wealthy elites and especially by rulers. It could be an important part of how they established their legitimacy and prestige on the landscape. For example, Mahendra Varman, who was the first Pallava ruler at the kingdom in the Southeast, was a patron of art, music, and poetry as attested by later chronicles and also by original inscriptions at temples and other monuments from the time. As for religion and worship, it seems as if the roots of religious worship in South India were connected to long-standing gods and traditions of prayer and worship that have deep roots in the South, and that centered on traditional Dravidian deities. One of them, for example, was Muragan, who was a warrior and philosopher and was seen as the destroyer of evil. And it seems that worship in the South traditionally involved caves. Caves were very important holy sites, and we can see that a great deal of time and resources were put into embellishing holy caves in the South with murals and frescoes, some of which still survive today. Then in this era, in the classical and post-classical eras, there was an importation of beliefs and practices from the north into the south. Among these things were, of course, the Sanskrit language, which was the classical and sacred language of Hinduism in the north. And also with that, 
there came four distinct bodies of religious and philosophical thought that missionaries, teachers, promoters of various sorts brought from the north into the south. Buddhism being one, also Jainism, and these two philosophical metaphysical belief systems were widely adopted among townspeople and merchants in the south. And Buddhists and Jains often supported monasteries and ashrams that served as focal points for these communities and to further spread and promote their teachings. Also, ancient Vedic Hinduism, based on the study of the ancient Indo-Aryan texts, the Vedas, and the performance of ancient hymns and rituals drawn from the Vedas. So Vedic Hinduism was adopted more by royalty, and many kings in the south performed public shramana sacrifices, as described in the Vedas, and they extended patronage and backing to the Brahmin class to sort of show their legitimacy and their loyalty to this ancient tradition. So they would shower local Brahmin elites with land grants and tax exemptions as a way of building an alliance with regional elites. And these Brahmins would also then propagate traditional Hindu morality rooted in texts like the Dharma Shastras. And then finally, along with this ancient Vedic Hinduism, Buddhism, and Jainism, there also was an importation of contemporary northern Hinduism, including folk Hinduism, as practiced by the townspeople and the peasants and the common folks of northern India. And this centered on myths and deities found in the Puranas and other later Hindu texts less ancient than the Vedas, and it revolved around certain popular gods that had been drawn into the sort of popular pantheon, most importantly Vishnu and Shiva. And it seems that over time, in this post-classical age, as the South really prospered, there was a general move away from these first three belief systems, Buddhism, Jainism, and Vedic Hinduism, and towards the last one the sort of contemporary folk Hinduism of that time. And there was an increasing devotion to Vishnu and Shiva, especially most of all Shiva, who was often identified together with various local gods and heroes from the south. And that really came to be seen as the premier, most central god in the southern belief system. And for example, as one indicator of this shift as the South emerged into this era of prominence. The first Pallava king that I mentioned before, Mahendra Varman, who was a great patron of art and literature, he reportedly converted from Jainism to Hinduism, specifically Shaivism, the the Shiva-centered form of Hinduism. This conversion, if it really happened, it may have set the tone for the Pallava dynasty and for that whole kingdom for hundreds of years to come. Or even if not, it may have been a sign of the times. He may have been following the sort of popular trend, which was moving away from these very abstract, metaphysical, and in some ways very morally austere doctrines of Buddhism and Jainism, and towards a more popular, more personal, more vibrant Hinduism. And the Hinduism that developed was, of course, adapted to the particular habits and sensibilities of the South. 
It was, in many ways, it seems more intimate and personal, more participatory. There was less deference to the special priestly role of the Brahmins, which had been more deeply rooted in the North and was more kind of new and alien to the South by comparison. And specifically, around the 600s, a new form of popular piety emerged called bhakti, which I've mentioned before and which I discussed in the later parts of my India Part 2. And bhakti means at root worship or more specifically attachment. It was a personal expressive devotion towards a particular god. The goal was mystical union with the deity. And in this way, the assumptions of bhakti accord with the Advaita school of Vedanta, which was growing in influence at this time. Advaita means no division, and it teaches that the human soul, the Atman, is actually one with the transcendent spiritual dimension of the universe, the Brahman, and that the soul can merge directly into that transcendent divine principle as personified by a god like Vishnu or Shiva. So bhakti is participatory, expressive. It is based especially in song. It played a very different role in society in terms of class and gender. So the main central metaphor of the bhakti songs and poems is marriage. And the literature can be very romantic and erotic. And the custom is for songs to use the female voice, regardless of who is writing or performing the song. The speaker is is understood to be feminine and the god is masculine, right? So the speaker is a bride and the god is a bridegroom. And the mystical union is represented as a kind of romantic marriage. And one example you can see in a traditional Tamil hymn or bhajan, which says, quote, when you see his face, praise him with joy, worship him with joined palms, bow before him, so that his feet touch your head. Holy and mighty will be his form, rising to heaven, but his sterner face will be hidden, and he will show you the form of a young man, fragrant and beautiful, and his words will be loving and gracious. Don't be afraid, I knew you were coming." So this is the sort of song that bhakti devotees would perform, both men and women. And it seems that the bhakti gatherings were very inclusive. The genders could gather together in one place, in one worship celebration. Also people of different castes and classes who might otherwise have remained separate. And the basic ideas and teachings of bhakti seem to have been egalitarian. Teachers and performers preached the essential equality of souls. And as I said, the gatherings could include both sexes, people of different classes. And they often were, over time, more and more, they would gather together in the sanctums of temples. And so this broke down the traditional exclusion where the temples were limited and closed their doors to many people of lower status, and especially the inner sancta were for Brahmins only. Well, those sort of distinctions were weakened by this sort of popular upwelling represented by Pakti. There eventually rose to prominence a set of kind of famous celebrity teachers of the Pakti movement, who sometimes are called saints, but more properly were sort of holy persons. 
And there was uh, an accumulation of stories, images, pilgrimage sites associated with these holy people. And it seems that the Bhakti movement in particular came to eclipse Buddhism and Jainism, largely by stealing their constituency, right? The kind of spiritual marketplace more and more was being crowded out by this popular and vibrant Hindu movement. And the new Bhakti saints eventually outcompeted the Buddhist and Jain preachers and gurus. As for scholarly high learning, this also was increasingly taken over more and more by Hindu teachers, where previously the, the scholars and learned people all over India, including the South, had been largely Buddhist and also Jaina. Now, more and more, that was taken over also by Hindus. So higher learning had been pioneered by schools attached to Buddhist and Jain monasteries and ashrams, where they would teach art, philosophy, and especially the Sanskrit language and literature. This more and more, this model was then adopted at Hindu schools and colleges, attached to country ashrams, teaching theology, mainly Vedanta, and then even more so as the centuries went on, attached to temples in the cities, where they would teach not only religion and theology and metaphysics, but also art and music and dance. While meanwhile, the, the crafts, like building or weaving, were taught more in artisanal guilds. With time, literature also flourished in the South in the post-classical era. And this started first with the learning of Sanskrit and the Sanskrit classics. But then the Dravidian languages and dialects also became literary languages for the first time. And this started with the creation of new scripts, first with the Pallava script for writing the Tamil language in the southeast, which then was adapted into the Granta script, which could be used for Tamil and also could easily be adapted for other languages in the south, and even for then for foreign languages in countries that were connected to and traded and had close relations with South India. So the Granta script was adapted for Sinhalese in Sri Lanka and then for Thai and Javanese in Southeast Asia as well. The South Indian scholars produced a great deal of legal and theological writings, as well as translations of the Hindu classics, and then a great deal of poetry and song. Often, this southern poetry, as it took shape, was more inventive and free-form than the Sanskrit literature of this time, which was comparatively very formulaic and conventional. There also was a flourishing of architecture, which formed into the so-called Dravidian or Dravida style. So architecture in the far south began with caves, which, as I said, were important gathering and worship places in the south in the prehistoric and classical eras. So these were places of worship and sites for art. They evolved and became laboratories for early southern architecture as people started to carve and shape these caves in order to make uh, carefully designed inner sancta and also gateways and entranceways. And this then evolved, it seems, in the post-classical age into rock-cut temples. So these post-classical kingdoms, which could command more resources, more labor, sponsored projects of creating monumental temples by carving them out directly out of rock cliffs and mesas. And this was sophisticated and involved a lot of skill, but comparatively, it saved the labor of having to quarry and move rocks. So it was, it was more labor efficient than building 
a, a temple freestanding out of nothing. But as these kingdoms became more prosperous and more powerful in the 800s, 900s, they started to sponsor the building of grand masonry temples. These took a lot more work, but they could be built right in the middle of cities for greater access and, most importantly, for greater visibility to impress the people, to impress visitors, to show the power and prestige of these rulers. And it seems that important art forms such as mural painting and statuary were transferred right from the caves to the rock-cut temples and finally into the masonry temples. And these masonry temples took on a distinct regional style, the Dravidian style, which is highly verticalist with very steep peaked towers and steeply uh, pitched pyramids. They are highly ornate and detailed with ornamentation at all scales, all over all surfaces of the building, creating a sort of dazzling fractal-like effect. They have a great deal of abstract sculpture, as well as human and animal figures and inscriptions, and symbolic motifs, especially the lotus, which is a, a spiritual symbol, which could be used repeatedly at different scales to sort of weave all parts and dimensions of a temple together. But this Dravidian style really only reached its full fruition under the rule and patronage of a new dynasty, a dynasty that was finally able to overcome the regional feuding that had plagued South India and unite the whole region under a single crown. And that new dynasty was the Chola. So the Cholas started off as feudatories of the Pallavas, based at a town called Tanjore at the far southern edge of the Pallava kingdom. And around the year 850, the head of the House of Chola, named Vijayalaya, declared independence from the Pallavas and seized control of Tanjore for himself and founded his own independent kingdom. With local support from the area, he was able to attack and overthrow the Pallavas at their capital, and through the 900s and the 1000s, the Cholas were lucky to then have a series of long-reigning and effective rulers, which oversaw their massive expansion of power and territory in India. So firstly, in South India, they first tried to assert their dominance over the smaller powers to the south, particularly the Pandyas in Madurai. And the Pandyas pushed back and made an alliance with Anuradhapura in Sri Lanka. But in the mid-900s, the Chola king Parantaka I defeated both and absorbed Madurai into his own kingdom. Then in the late 900s, the king Raja Raja expanded to the north, secured control of Vengi, that crucial province that had been the sort of prize for so many years. And he then turned westward, took control of Kerala, along the far southwestern coast, and on to the Maldives Islands in the Indian Ocean. The loot from these conquests was then used to fund the building of a massive temple complex at Tanjore, which is still today seen as sort of the, the highest monument of this era in South India. So at this point, the Cholas now dominated the east-west trade through the Indian Ocean and they were able to send their own merchants and emissaries all around the Indian Ocean Basin to East Africa, Arabia, Persia, to Thailand and Indonesia, and sometimes all the way up to the South China Sea and to China. 
From the 1010s to the 1040s, the king Rajendrakola Deva further struck out in all directions, asserting Chola power. So to the south, he was able to conquer all of Sri Lanka. To the west, he invaded and overran the Deccan, but failed to completely rout the Chalukyas, those longtime rivals to the west. To the east, he sent fleets that invaded and occupied the Malay Peninsula and Sumatra, which could seem, in retrospect from today, it could seem like the beginning of an overseas colonial empire. But actually, it seems that his main goal was simply to prevent the small statelets in Southeast Asia from interfering with their trade around to China in East Asia. It was about securing the rights of their merchants to run those trade routes into the Pacific. He also invaded northward, conquering the province of Orissa and reaching all the way up to the Ganges Plain in Bengal. But he was not able to conquer these lands around, in and around Bengal. He was able to take tribute back. And most importantly, he brought back from Bengal water from the Ganges River back to his capital. And this was very important because the Ganges is a holy river to Hindus. So this was like the most sacred prize that he could take back to his capital. And it showed the extent of Chola power, and arguably it represents the height, the symbolic height at least, of the Chola empire. So as for art and culture in the Chola era, Southern society under the Cholas created a set of traditions in terms of literature, music, and building that then set the standard for India in this era and that also were exported into Southeast Asia. And when we look at a lot of the ancient buildings and art forms and in Thailand and Indonesia, they really are based on the Chola style of this time. They also oversaw the integration of Indian epics like the Ramayana into the traditions of South India and then by extension then into Southeast Asia. So still today, if you travel through Indonesia or Thailand, you'll see annual performances of the Ramayana. That is because of the influence of the Chola Empire. Now, most particularly in architecture, the Cholas undertook more ambitious projects in the distinctive Southern style. And its highest expression, as I mentioned before, is the Brihadishvara Temple built at Tanjore under the King Raja Raja between 1003 and 1010, right at the height of the Chola Empire. The temple is built of granite, and the tower is the tallest in all of South India. The enormous steep pyramidal tower is built in tiers with then a small dome at its peak. And this main temple structure is dedicated to Shiva. The inner sanctum houses an abstract linga stone sculpture representing Shiva as a sort of pure cosmic principle. Only Brahmin priests are allowed in this inner sanctum. But meanwhile, that main tower is surrounded by a complex of gatehouses, pavilions, and smaller shrines that are open to all sorts of other people and that are multi-use. The shrines are dedicated to various other Hindu gods, such as Vishnu, Parvati, who is the consort of Shiva, and also to the sons of Parvati and Shiva, which include Ganesh and Murugan, that very ancient Dravidian god I mentioned before, who by this time was integrated into the Hindu pantheon in the south. So the Brihadishvara temple, again, can be seen to represent the, the apogee of Chola power and splendor. But it did go into decline in the late 1000s and early 1100s. 
and the Cholas were forced to begin to retrench. For example, they withdrew their forces from the Deccan and permanently gave up on trying to defeat the Chalukyas. Small feudatory dynasties around the empire began to break away and declare independence, beginning with the Hoysalas in 1216, and then the Pandyas, that long-ruling dynasty in the far south at Madurai, they declared their independence in 1257 and launched a rebellion that eventually overthrew the Cholas, and the empire quickly broke up. So the question over and over again when we talk about the decline and fall of empires is why? Why did they go into decline? Well, it seems that at least one reason was that their commercial monopoly was weakened. So they had gained a great deal of wealth and prosperity from these oceanic trade routes around the Indian Ocean. But now crucial overland routes from India to other parts of Asia were being reopened and they were opening from North India into other lands, such as to China through Tibet and the Himalayas and also to Central Asia and the Silk Road through Khorasan, which is roughly today's Afghanistan. So the Chola Empire was weakening as wealth and power was slowly moving back northward again. And hence, as a result of this, new northern states that were starting to emerge again as powerful forces in the north started to interfere in southern affairs to weaken the Chola, and they often encouraged or supported internal opponents of the Chola, like the Hoysalas and the Pandyas. And this hastened the decline and breakdown of the empire. So what then was happening in the north this whole time, all through this era when, as I've said, the south was flourishing? What was going on in the north? Why did the north go so much into abeyance, but then start to reassert itself? So that is the second part of the story. And in general, this era, the post-classical era, was for the most part an era of fragmentation in the north, during which no new state or dynasty came forward to replace the Guptas as the unifying force, although some did try and fail. Now, if we think back to the opening story that I told about this fleet on its return voyage from Sri Lanka that was captured by pirates as they passed by the coast of Sindh, and the prisoners were handed over to the local ruler. This, too, is representative, I think, because this was a time of local powers all around northern India that often relied upon opportunistic feuding and raiding, and that sometimes made alliances with simple bandits and pirates before then falling prey to them themselves. So piracy is the sort of thing that that comes up when there is no ruler that sees it as in their interest to establish law and order and maintain stable relations with their neighbors. Right? So this is an era of fragmentation and opportunism and comparative disorder. So in this era from the 600s at least up to the 1100s, the North was highly fragmented into small, often makeshift states ruled by clans and tribes that came to be called Rajputs. So this is a term meaning basically princes or sons of kings. Or you could think of them also as, as kind of minor rulers. And these Rajputs usually claimed Kshatriya status. So they fitted themselves into the Hindu social system in that second slot, the Kshatriya class of rulers and warriors. 
And they also sometimes claimed descent from mythic kings and heroes that were known in their different regions. So these Rajputs were, were local. They went to great pains to establish their ties to the local lands that they ruled. And they basically displaced the sort of remaining governors or so-called satraps, these sort of local and regional governors who claimed a connection to some faraway emperor, whether the, the Guptas or the Persian Empire, etc. So the Rajputs become the sort of ruling clans and networks of the north. And many of the great cities that had depended on long-distance trade and travel declined. But also, meanwhile, there was the creation of some new towns as new centers for these smaller states. For example, the Rajput dynasty called the Tomaras founded a town in the upper Ganges Valley in what's now called the Doab, the Two River Valley of the Ganges and the Yamuna. They founded a town called Dhilika, which became the sort of new main center of the upper Ganges Valley, and it developed into the city we now know as Delhi, and that was founded in 753. Now, while this was, as I said, a time of fragmentation and localism, nonetheless, some significant regional states did emerge and assert some power, and most importantly, in the far north, in the Himalayas and the foothills of the Himalayas, several regional states emerged that were able to hold on to their territory in their sort of secure position. And these included, most importantly, Kashmir in the far north, Nepal, which broke away from Tibet and which managed a lot of the trade and pilgrimage between India, Tibet, and China, and in the far eastern end of India, Assam, which also benefited from trade going through the eastern end of India into Southeast Asia and China. Meanwhile, in the Indo-Gangetic Plain, this more fertile but also flat, open, vulnerable region, some states did emerge that controlled large areas at least for a while early on. There was the kingdom of the Pratiharas in the west, based firstly in Madhya Pradesh and then also including Gujarat and Rajasthan in the far west. And then their rival was the Palas in the east, with their main base of power in Bengal. So these were two significant dynasties with, that controlled sizable territories. But the two of them then fought repeatedly, especially over the ancient city of Kanauj in the middle of the Ganges Valley. And this continual feuding and warfare led to mutual weakening, right? much like the Pallavas and the Chalukyas, except that the the two actually exhausted each other, and there was uh, eventually a decline and a return to fragmentation and localism. Now, as for society and the economy in the North in this era, it seems that in various ways it was similar to what was going on in the South, but we don't know as much about it. Right? There aren't as consistent, lasting, preserved records, but it seems that society in the North was also village-based, but it was more diversified and very localized. Long-distance trade built only very slowly, and sea trade was dominated by southern Indians and by Arabs. So northern India really didn't benefit much at all from the Indian Ocean trade. It was village-based and decentralized, like in the south, but it seems there was a flourishing local and regional consciousness. There was a cultivation of local architectural styles, local vernacular literature in the local languages and dialects, especially in the so-called Prakrits, 
which are this sort of regional vernacular languages like Hindi, Gujarati, Bengali, that derived from Sanskrit. And as for literature, there was a great patronage for local histories, often patronized by the Rajput rulers. And some of these were, you know, basically just uh, trying to establish the legitimacy of some Rajput dynasty. But nonetheless, some of them were very good and sophisticated and showed a lot of historical insight. The rulers, like in the South, sponsored Brahmin families, as well as supporting Hindu temples and schools. But these were on a much smaller scale, and less new work was created at these Hindu schools and monasteries as compared to in the South. It was mostly just the teaching and passing on of the Sanskrit classics. There was, it seems, a similar successful resurgence of Hindu worship, especially among the common folk in the North. And like in the South, there was a comparative decline of Buddhism and Jainism. They were losing a lot of the public's interest, and then this decline was accelerated later by foreign raids and attacks after 1000, which forced a lot of Buddhist and Jain ashrams and monasteries to close, and for a lot of those leaders and teachers to flee to the East. There also was a flourishing of bhakti, which was re-imported from the south to the north. Right? So a lot of ideas and deities and stories from northern Hinduism went south, and then bhakti came back from the south to the north and really found a new audience and a new vitality in the north. Bhakti in the north was more often focused on Vishnu, as opposed to Shiva, but used very similar language and ideals. And arguably, this movement brought new energy and new life into the Hindu temples. There also in the north was a great multiplication of many niche groups within Hindu society. So there was a multiplication of castes with many new castes and subcastes created, leading to a very complicated stratified landscape, like in the south, but perhaps even more so. Some castes were created or adapted out of existing local tribes and clans or occupational groups. There was also a multiplication of new religious and spiritual groups, such as cults devoted to certain heroes or deities that might sometimes be adopted then as avatars of Vishnu, the sort of primary most popular god in the north. And interestingly, even the Buddha was eventually adopted into northern Hindu mythology as an avatar of Vishnu. So there was a way of sort of reinterpreting and enfolding Buddhism into the Hinduism of this age. There also was the creation of new mystical and esoteric sects, which could attract many lay people, not just ascetic holy people. Right? So there might be mystical teachings in, say, Buddhism or Jainism, but these were understood to be sort of the province of holy people who lived in withdrawal from ordinary life and who might depend on alms and donations. Well, in this new Hindu environment, there could be mystical and esoteric sects whose members were simply ordinary farmers or merchants or scribes. There was an increasing celebration of esotericism and also of eroticism, of the vitality and symbolism of sex in the erotic. So bhakti, as I alluded to before, already has a strong erotic dimension. Some scholars have said it's sometimes impossible to distinguish some bhakti hymns from erotic love songs. There also was the development and flourishing of tantra, 
So the term Tantra, it seems originally in the classical age, it encompassed many mystical disciplines. But in this era, in the post-classical era, it took on a new, more specific meaning. It took on association of veneration of the feminine principle, which could be represented through goddesses as well as represented in the abstract as a sort of cosmic feminine And tantric teachings and practices could involve the mystical symbolism of the body and of sex and and sexual congress. Now, some of you may have seen possibly the most famous Hindu temples in the north from this era are a cluster of ornate temples built at Kajuraho in Madhya Pradesh in about 950 to 1050, covered in very rich statuary, many of them with sexual themes. And this includes whole friezes showing basically human figures having sex in all sorts of varied and creative ways. And the exact meaning of this sculpture and statuary is uncertain, but it is, many have argued that they may depict actual tantric sexual practices that were part of their spiritual and mystical discipline. Now, you know, one can exaggerate, it's not as if every Hindu temple was covered in sexual imagery, the way these particular friezes at Kajuraho are. But nonetheless, this fact and the fame of this sculpture shows the remarkable variety and richness of Hindu practices in this age, which flourished just before the arrival of a new religion, that would have a very deep impact and that in many ways would change the tone and direction even of Hinduism in India. And that, of course, was Islam. So people in India became aware of Islam very early on because of Arab traders that traveled and sometimes resettled in India as early as the 600s. And it came first to the port towns of the southwest it seems that the first mosque, the first known mosque in India, was the Cheramanjuma Mosque, which opened in the town of Matala in Kerala in 629, so extremely early, still during the lifetime of the Prophet Muhammad. And in these early years, it seems Islam was generally tolerated and even welcomed in the trading towns and kingdoms in India, but it made very few, if any, converts. Then, shortly after, it started to spread probably in the late 600s, early 700s, it began to spread into Sindh and Punjab in the northwest, partly due to migrants and refugees that were fleeing from conflicts within the Islamic Caliphate. Now, not long after that, the Caliphate itself began to extend its power and conquer the western parts of India. And this started, of course, in 711 with Muhammad bin Qasim's conquest of Sindh, which I already talked about and described at the beginning of this lecture. So you know roughly what what happened there. This was followed then by a long period of a stationary border, with Sindh being under Islamic control and the other statelets farther east remaining under the power of Hindu dynasties, although they had contact and were aware of the Islamic world. Then eventually occasional small raids began from basically bases in Afghanistan and the Hindu Kush region down into the northwestern corner of India. And this was not an entirely new phenomenon from what had happened before. It was much like what the Huns and other Central Asian tribes had done, basically using their skills with the horse to ride down and opportunistically raid into the hills and plains of India. 
So these sort of small local attacks continued sporadically for several hundred years until around the year 1000, a dramatic new presence arrived. And that was Mahmoud of Ghazni, who was the sultan of a small empire based in what's now Afghanistan. And in 998, Mahmoud of Ghazni inherited a complex and unstable tribal-based confederation. And in his first two years, Mahmoud went on a series of punitive expeditions around his empire, trying to suppress opposition and punish rebels. And this included some small expeditions southward into the Indus Valley, into lands that he considered to be his domains. Now, he found there a lot of low-hanging fruit in India, a lot of accumulated wealth in the towns and cities that was relatively poorly defended by these small statelets. So after 1000, he began a series of more extensive opportunistic raids deep into India, again, taking advantage of the speed and maneuverability of his horsemen. His raids led to a lot of destruction and impoverishment of many towns and cities, and also to some temporary alliances among these Rajput states, some small attempts at confederation to try to contain these raids, but no really extensive unity. The main opposition that Mahmud encountered mainly was the Jats, which was a confederation basically of warrior and horseman tribes, who for a while were able to intercept and counter him in the Indus Valley. But this opposition didn't last forever. Mahmud was able eventually to press past them further into India. Now, Mahmud of Ghazni, it seems, had no intention of settling down and ruling permanently in India. He really just wanted to raid and pillage in order to raise money to fund expeditions into Central Asia to exert control over the Silk Road. That was his actual goal. Now, it happens that along the way, he also sometimes sacked temples, where a lot of the wealth was stored, and he destroyed deity figures in the Hindu temples. This served as an easy way of sort of showing his Muslim piety and giving his raids a sort of religious veneer as attacks on paganism. And it seems his intention always was to just raid, see what he could get, and then leave. But nonetheless, he ended up getting drawn in over the course of years into the feuding politics and power vacuums of India. And there was some degree, it seems, of ambivalence, at least among Mahmud of Ghazni's forces and his lieutenants, where they found India to be richer and more opulent and more interesting and appealing than they had thought. They were drawn in to some degree by its mystery and its sophistication, as well as the loot. And this ambivalence, I think, is captured in an interesting story that is recorded in later chronicles about Mahmud of Ghazni. And the story takes place, it seems, in the year 1025, when Mahmud and his men captured the city of Somnath in western India, in Gujarat, and they entered the temple in order to raid it. And they found there a god figure made of metal that was floating in midair. And they investigated how this statue seemed to be suspended in midair. And they ran a spear all around all sides of it, looking for strings or cords connecting it to the walls, and they found nothing. Finally, one of them was able to hypothesize that the tiles on the roof, which seemed to be stone, 
above the statue must be magnetic. And so they started to systematically remove the tiles on one side of the roof, and the statue started to list and drift through the air. Finally, they tore down the roof, and the statue descended to the ground. And this story is very interesting, whether or not it's purely factual. It's interesting that it was included in these later chronicles of his adventures, because it's interesting to see that they didn't simply destroy and sack the temple. They found something so interesting and mysterious that they were compelled to investigate, and that made a great impression on them. And it seems that they were increasingly amazed by the ingenuity and the hidden genius of Indian civilization. And this this deep impression then was carried on and passed down through the years. Now, shortly after the sacking of Somnath, Mahmud of, in, of Ghazni in 1026 finally turned back and went back into Afghanistan after 25 years of raiding, and he died in Ghazni in 1030. So it seems that there was basically quiet on the northwestern front for about 150 years after that, until another Central Asian potentate named Muhammad Guri, or Muhammad of Gore, followed in Mahmud's footsteps. So beginning in 1173, Muhammad Guri began to raid southwestward, following similar paths and strategies to Mahmud of Ghazni before him. And it seems from the surviving records that not a great deal had changed in northern India in terms of fragmentation and local feuding. There had been no unification, no preparation to block or oppose another attack from the northwest. So early on, the events unfolded very similarly to 150 years earlier. But what was different was that Muhammad Guri brought with him generals and administrators, and he stationed them as regional governors along his pathway as he attacked into India. And it gradually became apparent that Muhammad Guri had different intentions. He wanted to found an empire and rule India in a way that Mahmud of Ghazni had never attempted. Crucially, in 1186, he besieged and captured the city of Lahore in the Indus Valley, and he soon made moves to proceed eastward across the Indus into the Ganges Valley. Finally, a Rajput ruler in Rajasthan named Prithviraj Chauhan organized a confederated resistance to try to stop this advance by Muhammad. And the most important crucial goal of this confederation was to protect Delhi, the major city in the upper Ganges Valley. In 1192, this confederation under Prithviraj confronted Muhammad at the town of Tarain, north of Delhi. And Muhammad won the battle, Prithviraj died in the combat, and Muhammad's forces immediately occupied Delhi. They created there a makeshift kingdom, which embraced large parts of Punjab, Sindh, Gujarat, and the upper Ganges Valley. And it was ruled at first by the Afghan and Turkic lieutenants who had come with Muhammad, and also to a great degree by Mamluks, sort of enslaved warriors and officials who had been brought with the expedition. And these officials fanned out and were spread out across several different cities around northern India. In 1206, Muhammad was assassinated, but his kingdom still did not collapse. Rather, what happened is that the Mamluks took over, and they were led by an administrator named Aibak, who declared himself to be Sultan, which is an Arabic title of rulership. So the legitimacy of Aibak's claim to this new throne in Delhi was highly open to doubt. 
due to the background of brute conquest, then assassination, and by Eibach's slave origin. But nonetheless, this proclamation by Eibach marked the formal founding of a new state, which has been called the Delhi Sultanate. And this Sultanate ruled much of northern India for 300 years. The second ruler who took up the throne after Eibach was named Iltutmish, and he also had been a Mamluk. And this cloud of illegitimacy still hung around him and around this whole sort of makeshift new state in Delhi. But that cloud was largely lifted shortly after when the Islamic caliph in Baghdad sent to Iltutmish a so-called robe of honor, which then marked him as a lieutenant and representative of the caliph in the east. So he had this backing, at least in the eyes of the Islamic world, and could claim to act on behalf of the Islamic caliph, even as he basically ruled independently in India. So through the 1200s, this Delhi Sultanate successfully conquered eastward through the Ganges plain to Bihar and Bengal, and then southward, quickly sweeping up the remains of the disintegrating Chola Empire. And the Sultanate through the centuries had periods of great flourishing and wide influence in Asia, but it was also very unstable. The sultans were repeatedly overthrown and replaced on the throne by former courtiers or officials. For its first 84 years, it was ruled by a so-called Mamluk dynasty, where the sultans were all ex-slaves who had risen through government, except for one ruler, which was a female sultan named Razia, who was the daughter of a previous sultan. And she came to the throne with the support of Turkish courtiers, who expected that she would simply be a figurehead, but who then turned against her and deposed her when she actually ruled as an active leader. Eventually, the last Mamluk ruler was overthrown in 1290 and was replaced by a court official from a Turkish origin named Jalaluddin Khalji. And Jalal had the support of Indian-born Muslims, who increasingly had become involved in the Sultanate, but who had been excluded from power because they were, they were natives, basically. And Jalaluddin founded a new dynasty, which in the early 1300s was able to successfully repulse Mongol attacks, and which further welcomed the settlement of new migrants and refugees coming into Delhi, fleeing from the Mongols. So these different events I've described, the first Ibox claiming of the throne, then Razia's rise to power and overthrow, and then Jalaluddin's claiming of the throne and the end of the Mamluk dynasty. All of these events were quite typical. Right? Power in the Sultanate was highly unstable and frequently shifting. Rulers were often deposed and replaced, and there were three more changes of dynasty, so that over the years, there were a total of five different dynasties that ruled from Delhi. So firstly, why is this? Why was the politics of the Delhi Sultanate so plagued with feuding and so unpredictable? Well, firstly, this is because it was such a complex, multi-layered state, and there were so many different parties that had to be satisfied. So where if, you, if you were a ruler, you had to worry about cultivating the support and preventing disloyalty among, firstly, both Afghan and Turkish chieftains who had come into Delhi with the initial conquest and who wanted honor and rewards commensurate with their role in establishing the sultanate in the first place. Then Muslim clerics and scholars 
who wanted to see Sharia law respected and enforced in the state, and who must also be placated in order to give support and legitimacy to the regime. Then Muslim diplomats and administrators and engineers who came into Delhi from all over the Islamic world and whose knowledge and talents were desperately needed in Delhi. Then Muslim converts to Islam who were local people of Indian origin who had converted and who often sacrificed community and local ties in order to join the regime, and whose local knowledge of languages and geography were also needed, and who wanted honor and rewards commensurate with their importance. Then also local non-Muslim Indian elites who also had to be placated in order to maintain control over the countryside, such as the Rajput rulers and princes, who had to be either done away with or co-opted into the empire, and Brahmin teachers in the towns and villages who had a lot of prestige and wealth, and finally the Indian populace, especially including the peasants in the Doab region around Delhi, who actually supplied the food to the capital, and who several times rose in revolt against high taxes and high food prices. So considering this incredibly complex political landscape, it is not surprising that this state was constantly riven by factional intrigue and that many rulers simply failed to balance all of these competing interests. And so there were repeated coups and rebellions and revolts throughout this history. But nonetheless, the Delhi Sultanate remarkably lasted for three centuries and saw the formation of something of a distinctive society in northern India in this era. So initially, as for the religious beliefs and practices in this time, you had a basic divide between the ruling elite that was Muslim and the broader population that was mainly Hindu. And early on, that ruling elite was quite insular. They were of mostly Afghan and Turkish heritage, so their ethnic and linguistic identity was different as well as their religion. And they remained mostly aloof, right, maintaining what they knew as a Central Asian Muslim lifestyle in Delhi, in the middle of North India, and in the regional courts around the provinces. Non-Muslims were allowed to administer their own justice and civil law in the towns and villages through their own leaders and judges. But meanwhile, at the same time, the Sultanate did send out tax collectors and governors to manage the money and infrastructure in the empire, much more so, it seems, than these older Hindu kingdoms had done. So while there was this, you could say, you know, in quotation marks, toleration or acceptance that most of society was Hindu and would remain so, nonetheless, there was also a greater penetration of this foreign Muslim civilization into Indian society. There was little to no effort to convert the Hindu populace. Non-Muslims were required, as was common in the caliphate, non-Muslims were required to pay a special tax, the so-called jazia tax, which was a graduated tax mainly levied upon the wealthy, much more so than the poor. And this meant that in times of prosperity, especially, a lot of revenue could be raised for the sultanate through this jazia tax. And one ramification of that is that the government had a fiscal incentive against conversion to Islam. Because if the wealthy elites converted to Islam, they would stop paying this substantial jazia tax. 
So there really was no policy of trying to convert the Hindu people as well as Buddhists, Jains, and others to Islam. But nonetheless, over the years, decade by decade, some conversion did happen. And gradually, Islam became a more widespread presence in Indian society. So why did this happen? Well, there are several reasons. One is that some Hindus of lower caste status chose to convert to Islam. Only Muslims, as I said, were allowed in government, especially at the court. It was exclusively Muslim. And so Hindus, if they were ambitious, if they had some hope of moving up in the world, getting a place at court or at a college or school in the capital, they would convert to Islam. Also, very low-status Hindus, people who might be even considered outcast, some of them converted because they wanted to get out of the bottom of the caste system. Right? Islam does not have caste woven into its theology the way Hinduism does, and it doesn't have the same taboos about social avoidance or uh, s- social deference and hierarchy the way Hinduism does. So some converted to Islam for that reason, although it seems it didn't necessarily always work entirely. There still would be discrimination from both sides, right? If you converted to Islam, that doesn't mean that in the eyes of Hindus you no longer count as a person of lower caste or as an outcast. And even among Muslims, there was class snobbery and discrimination. If you were aware that someone was a convert and moreover that they were a convert from a low status background. Now, Islam, it seems, did have, in some places, it did have some popular appeal and became something of a popular movement, especially in Bengal in the East. And this is an area where Buddhism had previously been strong and now practically disappeared, right? Its infrastructure had largely been destroyed or abandoned. Many of their leaders had fled from the Muslim raids and the Muslim conquest and gone to Southeast Asia. So Buddhism had long been declining. It was practically gone. And it seems that Islam filled some of the vacuum left behind, if that is a usable metaphor here. The sort of people who had seen Buddhism as more appealing because it had less emphasis on caste, it was more egalitarian, they found similar positive strengths in Islam. So Bengal is one area where a significant portion of the populace, it seems, became Muslim, but not the majority. It seems that the Muslim ulema, or the learned scholars and judges, they had little interest in the Indian folk. It was just not their business. But who was out there in the countryside who was bringing Islamic ideas and teachings to the common people and sometimes gaining converts? That was the Sufis. So Sufi mystic orders came into India from Persia and Central Asia, and some of them fanned out into the countryside. Some of them, the more ascetic, lived as basically holy hermits in isolated places, a lot like Hindu ascetic mystics who also had been known in India for many years. So these Sufis, even if they were extreme in their austere lifestyle, their isolation, this was not something totally alien to the people of India. Some of them also lived in towns and villages and held gatherings and formed brotherhoods which was common uh, in the Sufi movement, in the Sufi tradition. Some of their leaders then acted as sort of public spiritual teachers called peers. That was the Arabic term. But it was very similar to Hindu gurus who might have mystical or philosophical teachings and schools and followings. 
So the Sufis, it seems, were more effective at bridging this religious divide and finding a certain degree of recognition and appreciation from the Hindu folk and drawing in at least a small stream of converts. Now, as for the, the intellectual, the scholarly side of things, as I said, the ulema, the Islamic judges and uh, teachers, were generally not so interested in the Hindu population and remained aloof from them. But nonetheless, there was at least some limited intellectual exchange, mostly outside the royal court and the Islamic courts and at the schools and the ashrams of the different religious groups. And this took the form, firstly, mainly of Muslim adoption and reapplication of Indian ideas that they learned from Indian experts, such as mathematics using place value and the zero that had been invented as a crucial breakthrough in the recording and manipulation of numbers. In South India, it came to North India, and then it was adopted into the Islamic world. Also, many art forms like music and dance and poetry remained largely separate, but there was some mutual recognition and influence, at least in small ways. The main areas, it seems, of cross-fertilization were firstly medicine. So there were highly developed and sophisticated medical traditions in Islam and also in India. And a lot of physicians could sort of fly under the radar, right? They weren't under the control of the leading legal scholars or clerics, and they could exchange knowledge in writing and also in practice as they went and treated people around the country. The second area where there was exchange and cross-fertilization was in architecture, and it seems that a new so-called pata style of architecture emerged in the Sultanate, and this involved basic Islamic forms, right? Large buildings, often with domes and minaret towers, large courtyards with landscaped gardens. So the particular layouts of mosques and palaces in the Sultanate often looked basically like Central Asian Islamic buildings, but they could also then involve and experiment with Indian elements, especially as the builders actually laying the bricks and stones were Indian. So you might see corbelled rather than peaked or rounded arches, which gave them more of an Indian sort of texture. They also were ornamented, but the ornamentation was simplified and pared back as compared to the southern Dravidian style. So they would make use of tiles and brickwork to give sort of texture and complexity to a building instead of elaborate sculpture. And a lot of the beauty of these buildings from the Delhi Sultanate relies on natural texture and color of the local materials, such as brick, marble, and especially rich red sandstone. And this new style arguably began with the Qutb Minar, which is a mosque complex started in the 1190s by Aibak, that first sultan of Delhi. And it was built on top of the foundations of what had been the Dhilika Fortress, which Muhammad Guri had captured and demolished. And hence, you could see this mosque complex as representing the re-establishment of Delhi as an Islamic capital. And then the second Mamluk Sultan, Iltutmish, built a mosque and an enormous brick minaret. 
which is decorated in geometric brickwork and inscriptions. And it was inspired by Afghan minarets in Central Asia, but it was much larger and is still today, to this day, the largest brick minaret in the world. So in terms of art and philosophy on the elite level, there was some degree of exchange, even as the Hindu and Muslim worlds remained largely distinct and separate. But among the populace, among the common folk, there was probably the most effective and most intentional effort at a creative synthesis through bhakti. So the greatest, most influential bhakti poets that came out of the north during the Delhi Sultanate era were, you could say, syncretic. They were exposed and interested in both Hindu and Muslim teachings and tried to somehow weave them or reconcile them into a greater synthesized worldview. Probably the greatest bhakti poet, the most celebrated possibly of all time, is Kabir, who emerged from very obscure and mysterious backgrounds in India in the 1400s. So Kabir came of obscure origins. He reportedly, according to later biographies and hagiographies, he was raised by a Muslim weaver and his wife. And it seems he often used weaving metaphors in his poetry. As he grew up, he joined the circle around the spiritual teacher or guru Ramananda, And Ramananda was a devotee of Vishnu and of Advaita Vedanta, right? that metaphysical school that taught non-separation between the soul and the God. He also was exposed to Sufi Islamic teachings and practices. And he wrote his songs and poems in Hindi, the vernacular language of the north, spoken by the common people of the Ganges Valley. So while he was... Learned, he also, it seems, was a poet of the people, and his work was immediately popular. And his poetry criticized hypocrisy and superficiality in both Hinduism and Islam, and he sometimes attacked organized religion in general as hypocritical and superficial. And he argued instead for an internal spiritual truth that transcends confessional categories. And for example, one famous poem by Kabir argues for a single transcendent divine principle, which includes as aspects both the Muslim god Allah and the Hindu god Vishnu, which he calls by several different names, including the name Ram, right, which is the name of the hero of the Ramayana, who by this time was understood to be an avatar of the god Vishnu. So you'll hear those names in this poem as well. And this, the, the sort of most famous section of this poem by Kabir reads, quote, If God be within the mosque, then to whom does this world belong? If Ram be within the image which you find upon your pilgrimage, then who is there to know what happens without? Vishnu is in the east, Allah is in the west. Look within your heart, for there you will find both Allah and Ram. All the men and women of the world are his living forms. Kabir is the child of Allah and of Ram. So a group of devotees formed around Kabir himself, who came to be called Kabir Panthis, and 
they formed, you could say, a kind of syncretism of Hinduism and Islam, although, as scholars have pointed out, it could also be something more than that. It was sort of its own belief system, its own way of life unto itself. It was not just a mishmash, right, of Hinduism and Islam. His group remained fairly small, and over time it came to be folded into mainstream Hinduism. So people might speak of it today as a sort of Hindu spiritual sect. It never became a widespread movement unto itself. But Kabir was an important inspiration then for another later Bhakti poet named Nanak, who reportedly was born in 1469 in the Punjab under the Delhi Sultanate. His parents were Hindu merchants. So whereas Kabir was raised by a Muslim family, Nanak came from a Hindu family. But Nanak followed up on Kabir's ideas, and he reportedly traveled all around Asia, spreading this spiritual message. He died in 1539, and the group of followers around him, called Nanak Panthis, survived and grew. And eventually they collected his verses, as well as some of Kabir's and other Bhakti poets' verses, into a collected book, called the Guru Granth Sahib, meaning eternal or living guru. And this then formed the main sacred text for the Sikh religion, a distinct religion based mainly in Punjab, which developed mainly in the 1500s, and it only really took shape into an organized movement under the new regime that came later that replaced the Delhi Sultanate, and that is the Mughal Empire. So how did this happen? What happened to the Delhi Sultanate that led to it being replaced and superseded by a new empire? Well, the Sultanate went into decline fairly early on, from the mid-1300s through the 1400s. And this was reflected partly in losses of control over territories. So for one thing, in the south, as I said, the, the Delhi Sultanate was able to sweep up and claim control of large areas of the south that had been Chola territory. And they tried to consolidate control over these lands basically by bringing local southern rulers to Delhi, converting them to Islam, and then ruling through them as sort of viceroys and governors. And this worked at least for a little while. But in 1336, two of these princes from the south threw off their loyalty to Delhi, reconverted to Hinduism, which was a major move for a lot of reasons. For one thing, that you know, apostasy was a capital crime under Islam. But nonetheless, they re-embraced Hinduism, declared their independence, and created a new kingdom ruling much of the south from their capital at Vijayanagar in Karnataka, in the upper Deccan. And this was very significant for a lot of reasons. For one thing, it was a huge loss of territory for Delhi, but also this new kingdom in the south benefited. They were the ones that then benefited from a revival of maritime trade and diplomacy on the Indian Ocean in the 1400s. And in particular, the town of Calicut in Kerala, down at the southwestern corner of the peninsula, Calicut became the most important seaport in India. In the early 1400s, it was visited several times by the fleets of Jungha, this sort of uh, diplomat merchant who set out with his massive treasure fleets all around Asia and Africa, representing the Ming regime in China. And he went, when he went to India, he went to Calicut in Kerala, and it, he actually died there in Calicut on his last voyage in 1432. 
And then decades later in 1498, when the Portuguese first appeared in India, and for the first time, European mariners were able to land directly in person in India, it is to Calicut that they went. And it was with representatives of the Vijayanagar kingdom that Vasco da Gama met, not the Delhi sultans. So the Delhi sultanate did not manage to channel this renewed trade and diplomacy in the south into their own domains. But they lost the south, and then shortly after, in 1342, Bengal also broke away and declared independence. And then later in 1407, so did Gujarat. And Bengal and Gujarat were two areas that had the longest history of power and prestige, right? They, they had been the centers of those two strong dynasties, those two strong Rajput dynasties that dominated large areas of India earlier in the post-classical age. So there were these territorial losses. And then as for Delhi itself, the capital was dealt a devastating blow in 1398 when another Central Asian bandit ruler called Tamerlane, Timur from Afghanistan, who was a descendant of Genghis Khan, swept down into India, sacked Delhi, massacred many of the people, and took the city's riches away back to his domains in Transoxiana. So Delhi itself was able to recover some over the course of the 1400s, but it nonetheless was massively weakened. And hence, it's really remarkable and miraculous that the empire continued to function at all. But you could say it sort of limped along until after 1500, when the coup de grace was finally delivered. And that was the Mughal conquest. So how did this come about? Well, the last sultan of Delhi was named Ibrahim Lodi. He came from the Lodi dynasty, and he came to the throne in 1517. And he was no fool. He could see that the empire was in crisis. He was determined to reverse the decline and revitalize the empire. And so he attempted various aggressive reforms, including revoking the special powers and privileges of the old Muslim governors and nobles who were of Afghan descent. And he fired many long-standing senior officials at the court and replaced them with new young ones who were personally loyal to him. Now, this backfired as dissatisfied nobles and courtiers tried to rebel and repeatedly failed. So eventually a group of traders at the court reached out and formed an alliance with Babur, another Central Asian ruler based in the Fergana Valley in Transoxiana, who was also seen as kind of a rising star in Central Asia. And Babur swept in with his forces ostensibly as an ally to help overthrow and replace Ibrahim, and he would presumably get a share of the power and spoils under the new dynasty. But he clearly outmatched these disgruntled Afghan courtiers, and he was able to directly engage the sultan's army and defeat him at Panipat in 1526. So this was a relatively easy victory, and then Babur simply seized the throne for himself, declaring a new dynasty under his rule as emperor. The following year in 1527, Babur then faced a bigger challenge from a confederation of Rajput princes 
which he then also defeated. And this permanently cemented his power and began a new lasting dynasty, which the Indian people called Mughal, which actually means Mongol. And this was because Babur was partly descended from Genghis Khan. So they saw him as a sort of new Mongol invader. And this Mughal dynasty under Babur would go far beyond what the Delhi Sultanate had done, and it would go on to unify almost all of India and create a powerful centralized empire, as had not been seen since the age of the Guptas. And the Mughals eventually rose to a height of incredible wealth and power, while at the same time, from the beginning, they had to deal with a complicated new presence. And that was the Portuguese and the other Europeans that then followed in their wake, and all the dangers and opportunities that these European newcomers represented. So hopefully I will get to that another time and discuss this Mughal era and the new civilization that they created and how they had to negotiate and relate with the new rising presence of Europeans in India. But thank you so much for listening. Please go to my Patreon page if you can help support and keep these lectures coming. And if you want to hear my upcoming Myth of the Month on topic to be determined, that will be all or partly for patrons only. So if you want to hear that, please sign up as a patron at any level, even if it's just a dollar. And as I said, this lecture is brought to you by the letter E. And so in closing, I'd like to thank my current active patrons that begin with E. So thank you to Eitan, Elhith, Elizabeth Herskovitz, Ellen Siskind, Emily Klosterman, Emily Randolph, Eric Daffron, Evan Hafeli, and Evelyn Skidmore. Thank you.